everyone, and welcome to Full Stack Health, the podcast exploring mental and physical health in the tech industry. I'm Kurt. And I'm Amberly. And we're really excited to bring you these conversations today. We're turning our attention in our next two episodes to something that affects a lot of people, burnout. First, we're talking to Mick Bilikonski, who is an autistic and ADHD software engineer living in New York. When he's not writing abstractions, he's ranting on Twitter about essential properties, which, side note, I'll ask him to define for us, metaphysics, and the primacy of narrative to human consciousness. After that, we'll talk with Dr. Mimi Winsberg, who is a Stanford-trained psychiatrist with over 20 years of clinical experience. She promotes wellness through education, insight, behavioral change, as well as psychopharmacology. She's currently the chief medical officer at Brightside Health, psychiatrist at Facebook Health Center, and maintains a small private practice. And just a couple notes. In our conversation with Mick, we use a few acronyms which we don't define in context, and those are DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and WHO, which is the World Health Organization. So thanks again for joining us, and let's get going with our conversation with Mick. So hi, Mick. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm really, really excited to chat with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So first off, would you just introduce yourself uh, a little bit more? Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I'm a, uh, let's see, you got autistic ADHD software engineer in New York ranting about things on the internet. Um, other than that, I, you know, I, I realized I was autistic about two years ago and um, about maybe four months ago, I found myself really excited and interested in sort of doing some outreach and activist work around that and have, uh, fortunately stumbled into a bit of visibility around that. So I've got some, I've got a subreddit that I set up to talk about this and I, I talk about this stuff on Twitter a lot. Yeah. And that's actually how I came to be uh, familiar with you is you posted this really amazing thread uh, for Autism Awareness Month uh, earlier this year um, about, well, not about, but with the hashtag actually autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you want to talk a little bit about what hashtag actually autistic is? Yeah, so gosh, um, I think it was a, a Twitter user named, uh, her username is Neural Rebel that came up with it in about 2015, if I have my history right. Um, but basically the actually autistic hashtag is for content that is written by and for autistic people. The more autistic people have sort of found each other and compared notes and actually talked about what it means to be this way, the more we have all sort of increasingly arrived at the conclusion that like, this is not a disease, this is how we are. And the biggest problems in a lot of our lives are just that it's difficult to be how we are and we have to work kind of hard to fit into society. And so the actually autistic hashtag is really important because not only does it allow us to communicate with each other, but it explicitly centers autistic voices and not people speaking on behalf of autistics, which has been a major problem. We should uh, talk about burnout here in a second, but yeah. I wanted to ask really quickly um, in your intro, you uh, talked about uh, essential properties, and <laughs> I just just the one quick one two sentence explanation of I've never heard that ever. What are what is what are essential properties? 
Nobody's ever heard this term. It's, uh, it's a relatively new concept from a philosopher of mind called Terence Deacon, and it's published in a book called Incomplete Nature, How the Mind Emerged from Matter. And it is a way to reason about um, the way that the absence of a thing can in some cases be a presence in the same way that sometimes we write a zero and sometimes we don't write anything, right? And there's a difference between zero and null, for instance, in programming, right? So absential properties basically says that if you have like a goal, for instance, in your mind, we can't currently say that that goal has any causal relation to the behaviors that you do, right? Because the goal has no physical properties. It's just like an abstract idea and your behaviors are physical and what's non-physical can't inform the physical. And Deacon says, well, what if like the absence of that particular goal state is like a thing that characterizes that goal? The absence is like a zero where something should be a one, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we think about the absence of specific physical properties on non-physical things as the presence of the absence of certain things, then it closes that gap and we can start thinking about um, things like... uh, how do we bridge? How do we bridge the divides between sort of subjective and physical and things like that? And I find it really interesting because it applies in all these categories way beyond like where Deacon was talking, but it's not really irrelevant to this conversation. Too much. <laughs> the, the presence of the absence sounds like a, a line from a poem. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, well, honestly, what it sounds most to like to me is uh, if you've ever read the Tao Te Ching, like the ancient Taoist text, uh, a lot of what they talk about is very similar to this. I have not. Uh, but, no, but definitely sounds interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, moving moving over into talking about burnout. Um, sure. Something, something that I thought was interesting was in talking about the diagnostic criteria for uh, autism. Mm-hmm. Um, that made me think about the di- diagnostic criteria for burnout because burnout is not in the DSM and mm-hmm. it is just earlier this year recognized by the who Mm -hmm. Uh, and the description for burnout as a recognized syndrome centers the experience of chronic workplace stress yep and you tweet uh and correct me if i'm wrong but from just reading through your tweets you seem to categorize the burnout that you experience into sort of three categories in um, autistic burnout, which I would love to talk to you more about um, Mm -hmm. workplace burnout and then um, emotional burnout you've said before. So can you talk a little bit about all that? Yeah. I, so I have like my own way to think about what burnout is and I'm not sure how much it aligns with more conventional definitions, but let me, let me try to express what I meant by that. To me, everybody has a certain amount of energy that they can just use to apply to tasks every day. Everything from small tasks like brushing your teeth to large tasks like taking on a giant work project and leading a team to ship a feature. Every day you spend some of that energy and every day you get some of that energy back. And in a healthy life, you maintain a full tank of energy from day to day. You manage to recoup at least as much as you spend. You might have a period of crunch where you're spending more than you're recouping for a while, 
but you know, unless you're doing something really unhealthy, you're going to get back to normal like soon enough. If you don't, if you instead spend every day, day after day as a lifestyle, spending more energy than you recoup, then eventually you're going to wake up in the morning and you're not going to have any energy. And this is going to manifest behaviorally, right? Like you're going to have a hard time closing your tickets at work. Sure. And if all of your stress comes from work, then yeah, you have put yourself into a situation where you have spent more energy than you have for long enough at your job that you now need significant rest to recover. And I think it's interesting that these days millennial burnout is such a topic, but we still talk about where uh, burnout as fundamentally a work-related phenomenon. There's something that privileges the energy use spent in service to capital or employment as like a meaningful thing. Now that it's affecting productivity, we need to care about this, right? But what about all the people that like burnout for other reasons? Life is just stressful. What about somebody who's living with an abuser and who every day is afraid of, afraid for their life? You know, they're going to be operating below their capacity every day. They're going to be burned out in the sense that would be recognizable to somebody who knows the symptoms, even if they're like a you know, stay-at-home mom or whatever, right? So when we talk about autistic burnout, there's a very specific thing that that word means. And learning this phrase, autistic burnout, actually really changed my life. It's the, the thing that made me realize what was actually going on. Because look, I've been dealing with burnout for years. And like everyone else, at first I thought it was work-related. I thought like, okay, I need to like cut back on my hours. I was doing the startup thing, you know, like doing these amazing, like ridiculous sprints and, and just, just burning the candle at both ends. And I thought, okay, obviously I burned out. I'll take it easy at work a little bit. I, I left that job. I did some consulting. I traveled. Burnout was still there. I said, okay. I, I, you know, I moved to New York. I got settled in. I, I found like a low stress job that I liked. Burnout was still there took vacations, work from home, like do everything that everybody tells you to get over your burnout. You know, sometimes the burnout actually got worse. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Why can't I recover from this? And that's around the time I discovered autism. And that's around the time I discovered autistic burnout. And it made me understand immediately that burnout has nothing to do with work. You're burned out because of the sources of stress in your life that are costing you energy that you don't have. And if you don't want to be burned out, then all you have to do is end every day with like enough energy that you're going to be fine the next day. And that's what like things like self-care are about, right? Really at the end of the day, it's not about like just relaxing and having fun. It's about like understanding what your needs are, especially in terms of something like energy and attention, and then taking the steps necessary to ensure that you can meet those needs while also doing everything else you have to do in life. And so when I talk about different kinds of burnout, I mean, I, it's not really different kinds of burnout, I guess. It's like burnout triggered by overwhelming stress in a number of dimensions. Um, autistic burnout in particular, I want to make sure I talk about this, is something that a lot of autistic people talk about. I, you know, I learned this phrase from other autistic adults. This is not something that doctors, therapists, psychiatrists often are even familiar with. It's not in the DSM, right? And if it's not in the DSM, it's not real to a lot of people in the medical community. But when you talk to autistic adults, there's this very common experience. God, you know, I'm just, I'm, 
I had to like spend time with a bunch of people for like days. I had to go see my family maybe. And like, or I have a job where every day I'm doing customer service. And if you're autistic and you're interacting with people, it's a little bit like speaking in a foreign language, right? Because you, the way you model things, the way you communicate is not natively the same as most people. You think of things in terms of systems often. You think of things in terms of relational truths where the answer to a question depends on the answer to a bunch of other questions. You get really hyper-focused maybe on like discontinuities in, in models, right? If somebody says something that seems to disagree with something they just said, like that, that makes you really want to like unpack and understand that. These are all behaviors that drive people crazy. And so if you're autistic and you're in a situation where you need to deal with a lot of non-autistic people, then you need to constantly be subverting your own native natural behaviors in order to perform an identity that works socially. And if you're an undiagnosed autistic, then this is horrible because you're probably not even aware that you're doing it. You just think that everybody is living like this. You think that everybody's carrying all this weight. Mm -hmm. Everybody is constantly like managing their social interaction. The best way I've heard it described, and this is a tech podcast, I can, I can use this analogy. A lot of social stuff for most people seems to operate on the hardware. But for me, I had to, I had to learn it and I had to learn to operate it on my software in my brain. Huh. Right. And so that means when I'm having an interaction with somebody, I am thinking about everything I'm saying. I'm reminding myself to make eye contact. I'm reminding myself to ask about their day. I'm remembering to manage my tone. I'm remembering to manage my facial expression. These are all things that if I do not do, I face consequences. And I, I'm like a straight white guy in tech. I've got a lot of privilege. My consequences tend to be small. People that don't have my privilege, though, are going through every day having to perform an identity that isn't theirs, often not even realizing that this is the case, and then wondering why they're so burned out and why nothing seems to help, right? Yeah, the, uh, it's interesting. I had never heard of autistic burnout until um, following you and hearing about it from you. And you, in one of your tweets, had a, an article um, that described autistic burnout, mm -hmm. and autistic burnout on thinking person's guide to autism. Mm -hmm. And, um, it had another sort of tech analogy that I thought was interesting, um, which is if you've ever had a problem with a computer and it's had to go into safe mode, that would describe what happens to the brain. It runs on limited function. Not all services are available and it's access to the internet is denied and unable to connect. Yeah, exactly. So then imagine you're booting up in safe mode, all your hardware works right? Mm -hmm. If your social skills were in your hardware, that then like that wouldn't affect you. Mm -hmm. But if it's in software, then suddenly you start getting really weird glitches. You get weird bugs that other people don't get that you're like embarrassed and confused by, right? Yeah. And one thing uh, also that this reminds me of is, you know, you talk a lot about coping energy, like coping energy being really mm -hmm. core to this, how you experience burnout or how you understand burnout and it yep. reminds me a lot of uh spoon theory yeah um, yeah I, which what well, do you do you want to describe what spoon theory i was going to but do you want to oh go for it yeah go for it i talk a lot uh, yeah no uh, spoon theory is essentially the a metaphor used 
uh, primarily by people who experience chronic illness uh, to describe sort of the capacity that they have to accomplish everyday things. Like you have a set, set number of spoons that you can spend over the course of a day and maybe getting out of bed costs a spoon and taking a shower costs a spoon. Uh, but this same general idea in what you were talking about of, you know, you have this finite capacity um, that can be hard for, in the context of what you're talking about with autism, be hard for people who are neurotypical to um, understand. And that that article that you linked to, it also linked to another post by Ryan Boren. And a line from that that I thought was really interesting was wearing the mask of neurotypicality drains my batteries and melts my spoons. Um, and I thought <laughs> that line marrying those two concepts was yep really descriptive yeah absolutely like spoon theory is great i i have used that metaphor in the past there's something specific to the autistic experience that i feel like spoon theory doesn't obviously cover although you can use spoon theory to to refer to it um (laughs) i've actually this is sort of addressed by an interesting alternative i've heard discussed called fork theory um fork fork theory says look I have energy to do stuff, no problem. Every time you need me to do something, everything that I do, it's like you're sticking a fork in me, and that's fine. I don't care. I can take it. Until one time you stick a fork in me after I have accidentally run out of the energy that I need to tolerate being stuck with forks. And then I can't take it, and I'm probably not just going to like lose function in some way, I'm probably going to get upset. We're going to have like, I, the thing that like is so hard, I think to articulate the thing that I don't see talked about the thing that people don't generally understand is that being autistic in a neurotypical world among the many other invisible challenges that it comes with requires me to regularly get really upset but not show it and not sort of give into it because the thing that's making me upset would be considered unreasonable by anybody else. And so I'm not really entitled to that. Right. And spoon theory doesn't really speak to that exactly. Unless you wanted to say like not getting upset costs some spoons, right? Oh, well, how often are you not getting upset? You wouldn't believe me if I told you like it's, it's just like, I don't know. Does that that sort of make sense? It does. Yeah. And I'm not the authority on spoon theory by any means, but yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense that yeah, it it costs you energy. It costs you a spoon to handle. To just be. To just just exist and consume passively social interaction can have a high spoon cost. And that's like weird and hard to understand. Yeah, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. And what's interesting to me is, especially when you um, uh, zero in, like put it through the lens of technology and, and the tech industry as a whole, which is a very high communication uh, industry, right? Like you can do a lot of jobs like as a truck driver, right? And and you'll probably be able to save more spoons because you're spending most of your day in isolation. 
right? You're just driving by yourself. You don't have to interact with too many people. However, in the, in the tech industry, it's constant interaction with others in most cases. Uh, so do you find that that has like a more specific effect uh, on, on your, you know, the amount of energy that you have uh, to give throughout the day? And then as a follow-up to that is what do you do to recharge to make sure you do have enough energy to keep going the next day? So that's a good question. Uh, what I've actually found is actually really a little surprising to me, which is that all of the communication and stuff at work, in fact, going to work and working can often actually be a thing that gives me more energy and not less. And the reason for that, I think, is that when I'm working, so first of all, I often work from home, so I don't have a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. Second of all, the interactions that I do have are they're bounded by a specific system that like after 15 years in this industry, I understand. I understand how to communicate as a software engineer. I know how to communicate to junior devs. I know how to communicate to management. I know how to communicate to customers and clients. Like there are systems that you can learn. Right. Like rules and, and guidelines, essentially, that are exactly. developed. Yeah. Where things tend to get a little harder for me is like with, with actually with interpersonal stuff conversations with loved ones that are like really emotionally fraught where like if I say something I need to be very aware of like the nuances of how my word choice and my tone are going to emotionally affect them for instance right like having to do that all the time is the sort of thing that leads to my burnout way more than spending too much time at the office if that makes sense yes totally totally does uh, and then just again to uh, follow up, you know, is so let's say that your, you know, your, your battery gets drained. Uh, what, what do you do to recharge? How, how do you reset? Yeah. So there's, there's all sorts of ways to do this. Um, honestly, it kind of depends on my, my overall state. If I'm in a pretty good place, then I recharge by doing little side projects. I recharge by playing video games. I love to read. Um, you know, I'll go on a date with my wife. I'll like any number of stuff. But when I'm in a bad place, when I'm in a sustained bad place, I think anybody who's like struggled with burnout understands that like I, burnout kills your executive function, right? Uh, executive function, for those who don't know, is sort of the cognitive mechanism that allows you to go from an intention to an action, right? When you have poor executive function, you may want to do all sorts of stuff. You just can't. And it feels weird. It's like, well, why can't I? I don't understand. I want to. I'm trying to. I can't make myself do it. Exec like autism, first of all, and ADHD and a lot of neurodivergent traits often come with severe executive function problems. When you layer burnout on top of that, which manifests as additional executive function problems, it becomes really quite a bit to manage. And so when I'm in a bad place, honest to God, I'm just gonna like come home after work, smoke some weed, play video games and stay up too late. And like, <laughs> I'm gonna feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just that's just what it is. You know, there's, you have to, you have to find systems that meet you where you are. So just like a, a, a quick follow up to that, um, do you find that working remote um, is beneficial because it helps you have less um, interactions. And so I know that communication uh, is pretty much laid out, but 
in an in-office environment, there is still that small talk or going to lunch or having drinks with coworkers. And all those seem to open up the, um, uh, the door for those type of unplanned interactions. They do. They do. And, you know, again, I didn't realize I was autistic till I was 34. I'd been in tech for almost 10 years, uh, whatever that timeline works out to. You know, I, social interaction costs me energy, but that doesn't mean that, like, I'm bad at it. It doesn't mean that I find it unpleasant all the time. It doesn't mean that, like, um, you know, that water cooler conversations or whatever are, like, like, triggering to me or whatever. It just means that there's a cost to doing it. And what I have found is, so I, my, I live in New York and I work in New York. I have a 35 minute commute to my office, but I often just work from my apartment. I try to come in once or twice a week to get FaceTime and talk to people. Some weeks I don't come in at all. Um, and it's fine. I really look forward to coming in. I look forward to that FaceTime. I look forward to, you know, having those connections with my coworkers and colleagues. So it's not the case that, like, I don't want to give anybody here the impression that as an autistic person, every human interaction is, like, torture for me. That's, that's not what it is. Yeah, sure. Totally. It's, it's just that, like, it's almost like unpredictability raises the costs. There's, like, you, you start to think in terms of multipliers on costs, right? Like, maybe having just a totally normal small talk chat with my coworker costs me one unit of energy on a good day. But maybe they mention something that is connected to something that I'm trying hard not to think about because I just have like a giant meltdown about it. And like suddenly that one cost interaction through no fault of them has become a 10 cost interaction and I need to like reevaluate. And that's all fine. That's just what it means to like live in the world as an autistic person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. This has been like an amazing conversation. <laughs> I, I yeah. appreciate that. It took me a long time to be comfortable talking about this stuff. And the reason that I finally decided, like, if you had told me a year ago the things that I have publicly posted on the internet, I would be so mortified that I wouldn't be able to function. And a large part of my own recovery process has been recognizing that, like a lot of autistic people, I, I have been accidentally taught to feel shame about my own experience and my struggles and the things that are hard for me like a lot of autistic people whose autistic traits are not obvious, I have internalized modes of behavior that are not intuitive to myself. And like, it's, it's just what it is. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything, are there any parting thoughts that you really want to make sure you, you share? I want to be very clear about one thing. Um, I don't speak for all autistics. Nobody does. Uh, you can't. Every autistic trait, for every trait that some autistic person has, some other autistic person has the opposite of that trait, right? Autism is so broadly defined and such a diverse like field that we're still trying to understand what it is. And no one autistic experience can ever be treated as universal. The saying is that when you've met one autistic person, You've met one autistic person, and that's really important to keep in mind with everything I say here. Uh, I'm not an authority on anything other than my own life, my experiences, and the conversations and interactions I've had. I really encourage everybody to please educate yourself about this stuff. Seek out stuff on the Actually Autistic hashtag. Read the Autism Translated subreddit. Autism is not what you think, and 
especially if you're somebody who has tried everything to get over your burnout and nothing works, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, this stuff is important. This makes or breaks entire lives. Thanks so much for, for having me on here. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you sharing your perspective. We so much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Um, and to thank you for your time, uh, we'll be making a small donation to an org uh, of your choice, and you chose the Aspergian. Um, could you please tell folks a little bit about what, what the Aspergian is and why you, why you picked it? Yeah, the Aspergian is a writer's collective of autistic adults who come from all walks of life, diagnosed and undiagnosed, speaking autistics, non-speaking autistics, people with any number of comorbid disabilities, um, just writing about their experiences and what it means to be autistic. And they host a lot of the best writing, you know, specifically because they're not just looking at like visible straight white autistic men, which is who gets to do most of the conversation setting. And they're not looking at parents of autistic kids or other people who want to frame autism as like a disease or, or anything like that. They're affirming and important and valuable and you should check them out. You'll learn a lot. I absolutely will be checking them out. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Winsberg, for, for joining us. Would you prefer that I call you Dr. Winsberg or Mimi? Mimi's great. Thanks. And great to be here. Yeah. Um, so we shared a little bit about you already, but would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and a little bit more about who you are? Sure. As you said, I've, I've been in practice for over 20 years and my career shifted a little bit over the years. I was doing more basic neuroscience research and brain imaging research in my Stanford days. Uh, have been in clinical practice throughout, but in the last five years, I've really been focusing on digital health and um, and the tech sector. So, so trying to come up with new, innovative ways to deliver mental health, address the shortage of psychiatrists that we're seeing in this country, and the rising rates of anxiety and depression. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned the shortage because in the previous episode, we talked to um, two folks who organize a conference around mental health and tech, and we talked about that shortage. Um, do you, A, um, was there a particular reason why you were attracted toward the digital health space? And B, do you think that that's helping to address a little bit of that gap almost? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I got into digital health in particular because um, I'm an athlete, and so I'm in the habit of, of tracking certain metrics around athletic performance, and I was doing that and working with other athletes as well. And I found that that um, it was very helpful also for my my patients who were you know suffering potentially from mood disorders or or recurrent episodes of mood disorders, and it was very important to have them track things like sleep and, and other factors that was going on that were going on. And this whole quantified self movement was developing at the same time. So that's mm -hmm. what first got my interest in digital health. But then as I got deeper into that space, I realized all of the ways in which um, mental health care could be optimized using digital tools. And so I do think that it is starting to make a dent in both access and quality of care that we can deliver to the population at large. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the the topic of access and 
how it can open it up to more folks to me is a huge benefit of experimenting with um, all of these different types of digital innovations with delivery, particularly. Yeah, one of the things that we know is that we have a shortage of psychiatrists in this country right now, and we're seeing rising levels of depression and anxiety. They're hitting epidemic proportions. Uh, many of the psychiatrists are sort of clustered in dense urban areas like New York, San Francisco. There are entire states where it's difficult to find a psychiatrist or get mental health care. And um, the cost in accessing a psychiatrist can also be um, prohibitive for, for, for many people. So one of the things we can do with telemedicine and using digital health tools is we can connect patients in more remote areas with doctors who can deliver high quality care. And we can use digital tools and, um, and screening tools and other triage tools built into the digital health platform to both enhance and improve the care the patients are getting. Yeah, and I would love to ask you some questions about uh, Brightside, um, the uh, company you're with, but um, would you like to just give a short sort of summary about the philosophy of practice for Brightside? Sure, yeah. So we founded Brightside um, close to two years ago now, and we're, we're live in um, about 30 states, and we're treating depression and anxiety where our goal and our mission is to really provide uh, the highest quality depression care and anxiety care and make it accessible to people at an affordable rate. But we use, as I said, both telemedicine, so connect, being able to connect people from wherever they are, whenever they need help. And we also use um, digital tools like machine learning, clinical decision support that's served up to the doctors to help them decide what the best treatment for any given patient is and then track those patients' progress ruthlessly over time so that they get check-ins frequently to see how they're doing, do they need um, some modification or augmentation in their treatment strategy. And what that allows people to do is instead of being stuck in a healthcare system where they have a scheduled appointment whether they need it or not, and that appointment might or might not happen in a timely fashion. Um, this way that people can get care at the time when they need it and they don't have to wait for an appointment. They, they, they can connect with the platform and connect with their doctor at the time of symptoms. One of the things we see in mental health is that, um, I mean, this relates directly to burnout too, is that you know if you break your leg, you're going to get treatment for that broken leg right away. Whereas in mental health, what we see often is people who've been walking around on a broken leg for weeks to months to sometimes years. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of downstream effects from that. You know, their back might be out, their foot hurts. And you can just deliver much better care if you, if you um, address the symptoms as they present rather than waiting for somebody to really get into trouble. Yeah, so you started on this episode, we're talking about burnout, and you started talking about it a little bit, but um, can we, would you mind helping us take a step back and define, uh, sort of define burnout? Because my understanding is that this this year, burnout itself was sort of recognized as a syndrome by the World Health Organization, but it doesn't really have, it doesn't have any diagnostic criteria. criteria. Um, yeah, the, the WHO recognized it as syndrome in their what's called International Classification of Disease, so ICD-11. 
And it isn't recognized as a medical condition. It's, it's described as an occupational phenomena. So um, it's something that happens as a result of the work that you do. It's been widely recognized among healthcare workers, in particular doctors and nurses. But they characterize it by um, the presence of a, a couple of different symptoms or manifestations. And um, they describe it as a feeling of exhaustion or a feeling like your energy is depleted, a feeling of, of distance from your job. Um, so maybe feeling more like an automaton or feeling negative or cynical about your job. And then also there's a component of reduced efficacy. So feeling less productive or good at your job. Uh, you said that you're the on-site psychiatrist for Facebook. I'm also curious, is it only you? Are you the um, only person working um, with uh, the employees at Facebook? No. So we have a large mental health team at, at our on-site Life at Facebook clinic that's run by Crossover Health. So we have a large number of therapists there. I was the first psychiatrist I joined in 2017. And uh, to my knowledge, I think I'm the first on-site psychiatrist in the country because I don't know of other positions like this. So it, they, Facebook was actually sort of innovative in, and Crossover was innovative in bringing on a psychiatrist to address their employees' needs. We've now hired another psychiatrist because um, the needs sort of outpaced my ability to deliver, deliver care um, alone. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that makes sense, right? It's a very large company. I imagine that can be quite difficult. So kind of as like a follow-up to that, essentially how, uh, you know, what are some of the signs that someone may be at risk at burnout? Like how, how are you trying to detect a burnout in employees, uh, you know, particularly in, in tech companies? Do you see a lot of repeated patterns? Sure. Well, I will say that I think um, it's important to both recognize burnout, but also recognize when burnout may just be the tip of the iceberg and what, you know, what you're really dealing with is, is depression or anxiety. So depression and anxiety, as I said, they're, they're common. Anxiety affects about 18% of the population, depression 13, 10 to 13%. And tech workers um, are by no means immune from this, you know, so just because you work at a at a, you know, a high profile company doesn't mean that you can't get depressed or anxious. And so I think recognizing these diagnoses among the workers is important. Um, signs of burnout can be, as we said, a sense of feeling a little bit dehumanized, um, feeling ineffective or depleted of energy. Let's keep in mind that a company like Facebook, you know, they are recruiting they're recruiting top uh, top students, top employees from other companies. So these are folks who are generally very driven, um, are used to being at the top of their class, and um, are going to sort of work as hard as what's expected and more. And you know that in itself can can lead to a sense of depletion because standards are high and expectations, internal expectations are high. And what kind of, talking about these patterns, what kind of factors do you feel like contribute the most to um, the people that you see experiencing burnout? Yeah, um, in terms of, you know, personality traits or symptoms that might that they might present with? Uh, in terms of uh, maybe some of the environmental factors around 
uh, the sure. workplace. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I think that brings up an important point, which is that we, we do have this this tendency, um, you know, in this country to to medicalize. Uh, certain things and sort of frame it as a diagnosis rather than looking at some of the systemic issues that may be contributing to those symptoms. And um, we, we have seen this with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, obesity. These are all on the rise. And they are illnesses. They are real illnesses that require real treatment, no question. But they, there are certain life lifestyle choices and systemic uh, environmental factors that are contributing to their rise. I think the same can probably be said about, um, you know, burnout, stress, anxiety, depression. Um, we we oftentimes, because depression and anxiety come with some stigma, it becomes easier to express things as a workplace problem or a burnout problem. And we see quite a bit of that, I think, where people are, rather than maybe acknowledge that they might be struggling with depression or anxiety, it becomes easier to just phrase it as I'm burnt out, um, I'm, work is really getting to me. Um, but that said, I think there are sort of systemic issues in the workplace that may be contributing to this, the 24-hour work cycle, um, a feeling that one can't take one's eye off the ball, and, um, you know, pressured expectations about growth. Uh, a little sidestep to that, which I, just talking about like the 24 hour essentially work day. Um, I don't know if, if Facebook supports remote work, but have you noticed any um, uh, kind of correlation between working remote and people feeling like they can't turn off, like need to be always available um, and that potentially leading to burnout? Yeah. I mean, I think whether people are working remotely or not, there's certainly a sense um, of not being able to turn things off. And, you know, we see that contributing to insomnia, we see that contributing to lack of exercise and lack of other activities that are antidotes to burnout. So, you know, one of the things I encourage people to do is to zoom out essentially and so when you're when you're focused on your work you've got your nose pressed right up against the glass and i think it's important to zoom out in each 24-hour period for you know minutes whether that's a, a short meditation se session or an exercise session and then to do it weekly for hours so to find um, some real break in in the course of the week that usually on the weekend and then once a month to do it for a full weekend, and then once a year to really do it for, to, to unplug for a prolonged vacation. So I think building in those recovery cycles is really, really important. We, we see this in, in high-performing athletes too, that you know they need to periodize their training. You can't just go, go, go. You have to adapt, absorb, take in what you've learned, reassess, think about where you wanna go next. And so enforcing some of those those um, zoom out breaks to sort of reassess your goals and the meaning you're getting from your work and um, what you want to do next is really important. One question that I have sort of tangential to what we've already talked about is um, there's, it's generally regarded that the tech industry experiences a high rate of burnout. And I'm wondering if that's because there's a relatively higher amount of conversation around it or press around it like you see more articles around burnout uh in the tech industry um 
And I'm wondering if that has something to do with tech or if you think there's a reason why it's just covered more widely on the tech industry in particular. Yeah, I, th I think that um, <clears throat> tech workers may have the luxury of being more more vocal about this. I mean, in some ways, um, it is somewhat of a, a luxury and a privilege to be able to express it as burnout in the sense that there are a lot of, um, let's say, hospital healthcare workers, you know, maybe call center workers, uh, <clears throat> Walmart employees, factory workers who may be experiencing burnout, but don't have any choice around it. In other words, it's their job. They have to do it to, to pay the bills. And so they may be experiencing burnout as well, but it's not expressed as such. So part of it is, is giving language to, to something that is real and experienced by, by people um, through all swaths of life. And, and part of it, as I said, may be a way of expressing some anxiety and depression in a destigmatized way. Yeah. Do you think it's most often that those are, co I, I guess I re I'm rephrasing it to restate it, but do you think they're more often co-occurring and presented as burnout? Or do you think there's a, a state of burnout that occurs without maybe a different underlying more medical condition. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be chicken and egg in the sense that, you know, burnout can be um, the tip of the iceberg uh, and and really uh, sort of the result of long-standing stress and, and anxiety and potentially depression. And so then it sort of finally gets manifest as burnout. Or I think sometimes burnout can be the early stages of, of, of depression and anxiety. So I, I think they they go hand in hand. Stress and um, and anxiety and depression go hand in hand, and so it's important to screen for these these illnesses, which do have good treatments associated with them. And you know, ignoring them is 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 really um, can be very detrimental to one's health over time. I will say just to circle back to your question about why this is sort of more front and central um, with tech companies is I think. Uh, the speed at which many tech companies have to grow and the pressure the, um, the employees are under, again, will contribute to this to this twenty four seven sort of uh, work schedule and can exacerbate the um, the symptoms of stress that they're experiencing. So they are not stepping away from it, and um, and many times that can take years to catch up with. Um, you know, you will see. Uh, higher, higher level executives who who have are now successful may not be under as much stress, um, and and yet they are asking themselves, um, hmm, I thought this would make me happier, and I'm not I'm not happier now. I still feel I'm still stuck in this stress cycle, even though I've accomplished many of the goals I had set out to accomplish. And so there, what you're looking at is a maybe a need to address some underlying issues about, about goals and satisfaction and, you know, what people are really sort of how people are trying to find meaning in their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about is in uh, the, all the definitions that I've seen of burnout, it's generally very narrowly scoped to work, like mm -hmm. workplace uh, centered stress. Um, do you think, I guess, why do you think that is? And, do you think there's other types of burnout as well? I mean, 
that's kind of a tough question to ask because like we talked about already, there's no diagnostic criteria, like it's not a medical condition, but a lot of the conversation around burnout that, you know, I live in the tech industry world. So specifically in the tech industry, I see a lot of conversation about burnout. That's not necessarily only focused around workplace stress. No, I think you bring up an important point that it, it, um, it's defined as a, a phenomena, um, around the workplace, but what it really represents is a sense of dehumanization, right? Or maybe a lack of meaning in work or whatever the activity is. And, and so that's a much deeper problem of how, um, how does one feel human? How does one feel creative? How does one find meaning in what, what we're doing? And, and when you get into a cycle of, of, of losing that, losing your own sense of autonomy, losing a sense of meaning, losing um uh the why in what you're doing then that that can that can create all the symptoms that are central to burnout um i searched for some of your writing and you've written quite quite a bit about uh specifically sports psychiatry and sports burnout um, and i know that you you're, you yourself are an athlete um would you mind uh speaking a little more personally about you know if you've experienced burnout personally and how you sort of how you experienced it and how you handled it sure yeah i mean just to the first part about sort of athletics that um you know what i like about sports is it's sort of an arena for for life in some ways and um i think looking at athletes you know athletes choose to go to professional athletes choose that because it's they get to do what they love right we think that they're so lucky that they get to do what they're what they love but to be really great in sport it takes everything you have and, and then some and, um, you know, training and practice can certainly become very monotonous and take away from other focus like family, friends, leisure. So, um, yes, athletes are lucky to get to do what they love, but um, but they need to also be aware of, of grueling schedules, pressures, exhaustion and, and have some some balance in their life and keep the passion alive. Um, as far as my my own experience with burnout, you know, I, my mentors that I've had in my life, I want two of the traits I think that I've observed in all my favorite mentors is um, are are both curiosity and in sort of a contrarian mindset. <laughs> Those are two things that I always always respect, and I I think that um, it's so important in whatever you're doing to to maintain curiosity and and continue to learn, you know, and to not get stuck in a fixed routine or fixed mindset about anything. It's so important to think about growth and how you're growing and um, what more you can learn. And with that, I think to be wary of groupthink in some ways, you know, just because everybody is doing things a certain way doesn't mean there isn't another way to look at things or another way to do things. And I think both of those uh, traits of, of, of maintaining curiosity and, um, and thinking about new ways to do things can actually be powerful, uh, powerful ways to avoid burnout. Um, it, because it, it, it keeps the, uh, the interest and passion in what you're doing alive. And, uh, you know, it's interesting with, 
with I mean, healthcare workers are very, very prone to burnout. A lot has been written about that. Uh, doctors with their increasing demands um, for for uh, reimbursement and documentation are, are feeling like they've lost the, 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 the joy and the reason why they went into, into the field. And one of the things we've seen um, with in developing Brightside is, you know, not only are we providing um, innovative ways for patients to get treatment for their mental health, but the doctors love it too because they, they get to practice in new innovative ways and it's, it's reinvigorating their joy in work. And so, again, I think this notion of curiosity and innovation are very central to, to, um, to avoiding burnout. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with pretty much anything you do, right, like staying curious and staying active is just, uh, you know, just helps keep that, that kind of flame alive uh, and keep mm -hmm. things going. And sometimes it means reinventing yourself, you know? Yeah. Do you, do you think that that was kind of key to helping you overcome burnout or avoid it completely? Yeah. Like I said, I, I, I think that I've had the luck of reinventing myself several times in my life. And so I know I haven't quite experienced burnout. I think when something starts to feel anywhere close to that, I, I change it up a little bit to, um, to give myself new challenges. And I've, I've always, I've always been good at taking on taking on new challenges, whether they're physical or mental or whatever they might be. What what I will say though is that you know making change when you're very busy is hard. It's hard to make change, period. But to do it when you're when you're really busy is is much much harder. And so thus the importance of stepping back periodically to consider how you might want to make that change. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, before we wrap up here, I, I wanted to ask, like, do you have any like final thoughts or anything that you would want to add anything you want anybody who might be listening to know about burnout or, uh, anything regarding that? Sure. I mean, I think, uh, first is make sure you're not suffering from depression or anxiety. There are really good screening tools. Um, you can take ours at Brightside if you want to, there are also good treatments. So, so ask, People need to ask themselves if there are unaddressed issues that, that feel too hard to tackle that might benefit from having a look at. I, th I think the other thing is this importance of stepping back from you know, the grind to reconsider what, what your goals were, what, where you want to go. Do this in a periodized way. Take time every week, every month. Um, the longer the interval, the longer you should step back for. And then I think lastly, just don't lose sight of... Um, that we're social beings, that we need time with people, with friends, with, with whoever is important to you in your life. We need time to play, not just work. And we need time in nature. So that's something that I see missing in a lot of, a lot of tech workers' lives in particular. Absolutely. Friends, play, and nature. Um, um, and, you know, making ourselves physically uncomfortable is probably something our bodies have been um, sort of evolved to do. So there, there's no harm in taking on physically uncomfortable activities a few times a week either. I, th I think all those, those things are, are helpful in terms of um, reconnecting with other aspects of ourselves that are not our work life. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's amazing. So I just wanted to thank you again uh, one last time for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, this has been uh, very informative. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for our third episode. We really appreciate it. We hope you'll join us again next time. And if you know someone who you think would really enjoy the show, we'd love it if you'd send it to them so they can check it out too. 
And thanks once again to Mick and Mimi for joining us and sharing their perspectives and expertise. To thank them for their time, we'll be making donations to organizations of their choice. Mick chose the Aspergian, which he told us a little bit about. And after we talked to Mimi, she let us know later that she'd like us to contribute to Crisis Text Line, which is a free 24-7 support service for people in crisis. And all of their counselors are 100% volunteer. We're really loving putting these episodes out into the world, and we're hoping that you're getting something out of it as well. And we just want to say, as always, be well, everyone. (laughs) 